Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Verses 10 through 11 read this way. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the the heavenly realms. Good morning. So glad that you're here in worship this morning. Um, Great opportunity for us to receive the elements of Holy Communion and to uh, allow the Word of God to drip upon us, saturate our souls, and act upon it in our lives. Uh, Keith has said plenty about the bells that are coming up this afternoon. We hope you'll come right back this afternoon and hear this. It's an awesome time in worship and and, uh, celebration of of the bells and their ministry. And I want to say one thing. Uh, I've said it throughout the morning. Um, yesterday was a great uh, moment in the life of one family in our church that also have been great community servants in Marion for a long, long time. The Vic and Pat Kloppenstein Amphitheater out at Lau Park was uh, dedicated, and the ribbon was cut yesterday. So certainly we cheer on Vic and Pat. And it was a great day. Uh, everybody has told me, said, it was great. A little windy, but it was great. Uh, Pastor Keith was leading a wedding, and I was preaching at a graduation service yesterday. And uh, so we weren't able to be there, but we've heard nothing but great. So praise the Lord. <clears throat> I'm going to submit to you today that you can learn a lot from just one sentence. You can learn a lot in just one sentence. We got a postcard in the mail a, a week or so ago. It said one sentence on it. Save the date, June 21st, for Jera and Spencer's wedding. One sentence told me everything I was going to be doing that weekend. You can learn a lot from one sentence. One sentence. How many of you have seen this sentence? I, I want you to raise hands. It'll reveal a little bit about you. How many of you have seen this sentence somewhere where you've been? State law requires you to take a new plate every time you go through the cell bar. Come on. I'm the only one that goes with you and Chris. All right, thank you. All right. I knew it. So here, uh, another, another sentence. One sentence you can learn a lot from. This was in the newspaper. I had to explain the newspaper to 945 service. It's something that older people hold in their hands and not on the iPad. But maybe you can get it there. One sentence in the newspaper you can learn a lot from. Saw it last week. Love means accepting your boyfriend's tattoo. It's actually a pretty cool article about what to do when you married somebody that had somebody else's name on their arm. But, you know, you just got to get come to grips with that. But you can learn a lot about just one sentence. Consider the first sentence of the membership vows that one says when they join this church. Take a look at it. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? Listen, if you read that quickly, if you read it quickly, you will see, well, maybe it's just some basic promise to do good with your life or to be good, but I would say that there's much more at hand here. See, Keith and I are are launching into this sermon series that he began last week uh, that's entitled, Should I Join? Because we believe our membership vows have a depth and richness and meaning that should not be taken lightly. But here's one of the problems that we face in taking these very seriously. Many of us became members before we knew how to take the vows seriously. Take a look at what I look like when I took my membership vows. 
You know, when you laugh like that, I can hear you, right? You know I hear that. <laughs> Thank you, Al. Self-esteem rose back up. But you know, when I was that age, I, I have to tell you, there probably wasn't much discernment regarding the deep meaning of the membership vows uh, and what they carry. I, I'm sure, you know, I was more, you know, worried about whether the bangs I was rocking was, were looking the right way. Or maybe, likely, in my seventh grade, I was looking down the communion rail when I was standing here at confirmation thinking, well, what's Monica Broderick doing, you know? It's that kind of stuff. So, so probably not too much discernment went into many of us if we looked something like that or whatever bad haircut you had in the day of your confirmation. And so we need to take a deep look at what we say yes to and what we say no to when we become a member of the Church of Jesus. So we launch into this series for those who are considering membership they can have the ability to deeply through what me- think deeply through what membership means. And for those of us that are long-term members, maybe if we've been a member long enough that we might have looked something like that, we need to decide, we need to thoughtfully and prayerfully consider whether we want to re-enlist, whether we want to re-up our commitment to the church of Jesus to see if this is the right thing. And so over the next few weeks, Keith and I are going to lead you in some discernment on the sentences we say when you join the church of Christ. And so today... The first sentence of our membership vows is this. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sins? That one sentence, that sentence on the screen in front of you, says a lot. It tells us that before we can accept God's freedom and power and confess Jesus Christ as our Savior, there are some things we absolutely have to say no to. We have to unequivocally say no to them. And that one sentence that you see on the screen before you contains all three of the basic influences which Christians struggle with, and the three things that we have to do that can help us overcome them. Each influence happens on a different plane of our existence, too. One is in the cosmic, one is in the world in which we live, and one is in our internal world, the world of our spirits. Let's start high up above in the cosmic realms. Ephesians 6, chapter 10, or or, verse 10 uh, in Ephesians 6 that Keith read a few moments ago, starts with this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can, get this, take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not, underlying highlight, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, evil in the heavenly realms. We cannot step away from this. You see, the historic and the modern church affirms something very important for us to affirm. Spiritual forces of wickedness exist. So many of us want to say, oh, no, they don't. It's just a construct of the human mind. Spiritual forces, that's no big deal. That's just made up. That's just because your conscience turns the wrong way. But United Methodist theology is not soft on this issue. We lean right into the Scriptures. And Scripture does not lack clarity on this issue. It tells us over and over and over again that there are two spiritual forces operating in this world. There is God, who is good. It's 1 John 5 says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And there is Satan, standing opposed, who, as the Scripture says, is the evil one. Now, Scripture is very clear 
that this spiritual warfare is constantly going on. There is never a time that is not going on. And the forces of good and evil are battling themselves in the cosmos, in the world in which we live, and in our individual lives all the time. And so the person who pursues a life with Christ must first and foremost, and hear this, because I've been to many, many, many meetings of Methodists and others that, that kind of poo-poo the notion and say, well, this battle really doesn't exist. Well, the first thing you have to do if you want to pursue a life with Jesus Christ is this. You have to recognize the battle, that the battle of good and evil exists. You have to understand that it is all around you all the time. And you have to see that in the world in which we live, there is a war going on and we're in the middle of it. You can't step away. There is no neutral ground. You're going to be called to affiliate with one side or the other and you have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. And so when we say we renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, that is a very strong word that we're pronouncing there. It says that we disavow, that we forsake, that we're disowning that which is wicked in the world. You know, Pastor Keith and I and, and a whole host of Simon and a whole host of others go to summer games every single year. Last year we took over uh, 100 students down to Grinnell College to summer games. Now, Grinnell College is not known as a bastion of Christian uh, life. It's just a place that was built for secular education and all that sort of thing. And the place we have worship in was not built for worship either. It was built to be a concert hall. This year, the place, because we've grown so much that we built this built, was built to be the game auditorium for basketball or a game gym. But one of the things that we do right off the bat when we get there, the pastors get there Sunday night. The college students have been there a few days earlier. The first thing the pastors do is that we're, give, we're broken into little groups. And we go into the sanctuary, which is, in this case, going to be a gymnasium-turned-sanctuary. And we pray over every single seat in the place. So this year we're planning to look at six, 700 seats. Pray over every single one of them. We pray, for the fact, we pray that the Holy Spirit might come and enter the child or youth that comes to sit in that seat during the course of the week. We pray that their minds might be cleansed of, of that which is pushing them away. Because here's the thing. We know that every student that sits in that gym or sits in that concert hall does not live at Grinnell College. They have to come home and they have to live out their life and their faith out in a junior high school, a middle school, a high school. They have to live it out in their families. They have to live it while they're serving soft serve ice cream at, the, at Dairy Queen or someplace like that. They have to live that in the real world. And so not only do we pray that God might enter them, but we pray a prayer uh, uh, that a hedge of protection will be around each one of these students and we pray that they will honestly renounce the wicked forces of this world because we believe that they exist and they're at battle for every soul in, uh, on on the earth and we of course in those moments are praying specifically uh, for those that are gathering here and, and i we pray that that the kids might renounce them and i pray that you might renounce them as too we from time to time pray through every seat in these pews the balcony the chapel all those kind of things one of the things that we pray is that our congregation will renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness. Because when you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, what you're saying is you're making a public de declaration that the spiritual forces of wickedness have no authority over you. They have no rule in your life. And you're, dis you're, you're, you're disassociating yourself from them. And I will tell you that when you do this, you fight them not in your own strength. You fight them with the strength of the Almighty God. And the weapons you take up are not like Nerf guns or Nerf swords or something like that against the wicked force of the world. They are powerful weapons. They are weapons that are filled with divine power and they can slay any foe they come up again. And I will tell you this thing too because it's important to know. The battle's already won. Who would not get on the winning side in a battle when you already knew the outcome? 
See, one of the, mis- one of the great misappropriations of theology in the world in which we live, in the North American culture, is that people somehow, and I've heard it said in the church, and I've heard it said outside the church, somehow people begin to think that Satan and God are equal and opposed forces. And they are not. They're not equal and opposed forces, and this is how I know. God is the creator. He created everything that is, was, and is going to be. Satan is a created being, far inferior to God, far lower down the chain of existence. And therefore, Satan is an enemy that's defeated by Christ's death on the cross and resurrection to eternal life. He is doomed to eternal and ultimate destruction. He can create a lot of harm, and he's done that in your life and mine. But he is defeated. You see, I tell this, you know, as an, not as an aside, but, you know, when we read the Holy Scriptures, the battle between Satan and God is no battle at all. God is high and powerful and with all the power of the universe and creation. And when he is done with Satan, if you read the last few pages of the Bible, you see this, Satan's doom. It takes God a thought to distract, to, to discard Satan. He really doesn't get up from the throne such as it was. He just kind of looks over and says, someone take care of that. I am done with it. And he has his angels fling Satan into the abyss. Now, when you're more powerful than someone, enough more powerful than someone that you can fling them, you are completely superior to them. And this is not the Lord our God that gets up. It's just one of his angelic beings. Understand that. God and Satan are not equal and equally opposed forces. God is so, uh, you know, uh, huge compared to Satan's smallness. So even though Satan has a foothold in us, he's defeated ultimately when we turn our lives to Christ. And so you ask the question, should I join the church? Know that if you do, you must say no to the spiritual forces of wickedness. You must say no to that. And the second thing you must do is you must reject the evil powers of this world. See, God allows evil in the world. And that's a, the logical question that follows that is, why and did God create evil? Well, let me explain it to you this way. Evil is not a thing. Thing. It is not a quantifiable thing. You cannot go to Walmart this afternoon and say, hey, I'll take a 12-ounce jar of evil. Okay? You can't go put your hands on it. Evil has no existence of its own. It's really in the absence of good. Let me alliterate it this way. Some of you, I've been told the weather's raining, so maybe you won't be today, but soon some of you might be digging holes in your yard to put in some new foliage or a bush or something like that. See, holes are real, but they only exist in something else. I can't say, hey, look at the hole I've got right here. You say, no hole there, Mike. There's space. When you dig into the ground, you make a hole, but it doesn't exist in and of itself. It is in something. And the same thing is true about things like cold. I mean, cold doesn't exist on its own. It's simply the absence of heat. Darkness doesn't exist on its own. It's only the absence of life. And when evil exists, it's only the absence of good, not the absence of God, the absence of good. So when God created us, it is true that he created everything, and everything was good. And one thing that God made was creatures who have the freedom to choose. And in order to have real choice, because we don't want just some manufactured little choices, in order to have real choice, God allows something besides good for us to choose. The Lord didn't want us to be robots that were pre-programmed to do exactly what he wanted us to do. So God allows the possibility of evil. And God allows angels and humans to choose good or reject good, making very clear in Scripture throughout in hundreds of passages, 
his preferences. In, in passages like Psalm 97, where he says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. In Proverbs, he says, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of the evildoers. And in Jeremiah, he says, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land of the, that the Lord gave to you. Now, you can look and in, 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 you can do a quick Google search and find hundreds, I mean hundreds, of scriptures about this matter. This is not ethereal. This is not a somewhere up there, out there issue. The rejection of the evil powers of this world indicates that what, that what we are rejecting are things that are right here on the earth. Not things that are out there in the supernatural powers at this point. They're things in the world under the influence of evil. Let me give you a little example. When our first graduated from high school, Teresa and I did probably the dumbest thing two parents have ever done. We allowed her to go to Nicaragua for a year. What kind of loving parents sends their child to Nicaragua where there's 60% unemployment, poverty is out of control, and nothing but drug lords and gangs? But the Lord was moving her, so we we're not going to stop there. So we sent her to live in this place. Take a look at this place where she lived. This place is called El Puente, which in Spanish means the bridge. And the first thing when Sarah and her group moved into this place, and you can see it's a gated community. The guards stood there with them, the four Nicaraguan guards, 24-hour guards that they had. They stood by the front gate, which is actually a double gate. You can't really see it because in the archway behind the first gate, there's another gate so you can get in, but then you can't get in again. They told them, you must be in here at 9 o'clock. There are no exceptions. This is not like I'm late for curfew at home. If you're not in here by 9 o'clock, you were out there and you were on your own. Now, if you look at the front door of that picture, you come down those steps and about from, from me to, to Brittany there, or to Morgan there, um, which is about five rows back, that's where the drug lords lived, right across the street, facing this place, the bridge, El Puente. The drug lords kind of let the Christian missionaries exist because they were good for the kids in the community. They kind of kept them out of the way. But they also made very clear to the, to the students, the college, 13 college students that were living in this place, hey, when it gets dark, you be in there, don't be out here. Show the next slide there, Caleb. I stayed in this beautiful place called Hotel Concorazon. Hotel Concorazon is just about four blocks from El Puente. Looks beautiful, doesn't it? Gorgeous pool. Hotel rooms were great. Coolest thing about Nicaragua was uh, in my hotel I had air conditioning. It was the first day I got up and they said, hey, it's 40 degrees outside. And I'm like, Oh, dude, that's Celsius. That's really odd, right? And this is a beautiful place. But look on the right side of the picture. There's also a giant wall there. That's to keep the outside outside. Because when I got to Hotel Concorazon, before they took, my, uh, took me to my room, before they took my credit card, they walked up to this door that was about four inches thick. It was solid wood, about the size of our double doors. And when they closed it at night, they put three two-by-fours across it so it couldn't be opened. There's no ocean in Nicaragua. Okay? There was no crash bar. There was no getting out if you're in that hotel at night. And they told me this. They said, sir, broken English, of course, you need to be in here by 9 o'clock, no exceptions. If you're not here, on own. On own. I thought, these people are taking this kind of seriously. And get this, when I was getting to leave the last day, my taxi was coming at 5.30 in the morning, which made them very uncomfortable because they didn't open the doors till 7 a.m. when the sun actually was all the way up. So what they do is they have this little window about the size of, uh, you know, a, a, a water bottle, and they open it 
uh, which is closed, uh, you know, with a big heavy piece of wood. And they shove out an extending mirror and they look down the street that way. And then they turn around and look down the street this way to make sure there's no gang, you know, villains, gangs, or thugs out there. And when they opened the door, which was another little smaller door, which was also pretty much bolted shut to get me out of there, the guard had my suitcase in his hand. When he opened the door, he threw it towards the taxi driver and pushed me out the door. Taxi driver caught it, threw it in the back seat of the taxi, told me to get in the front, and drove off like he was, you know, like, uh, like he was Tony Stewart or something like that. And then he drove me out into the country where I was certain when he stopped he was going to execute me. But what he did was he said, oh, you can get in the back now. And he put my suitcase in the back. They were that terrified. This is how close they were to this. Take a look at this next picture. Looks beautiful, doesn't it? Central Park in Granada, Nicaragua. Granada is about the size of Marion in geography, but 120,000 people live there. And right in the center of it is this park called El Centro, the center park, Central Park. Looks beautiful, you know, during the day. Artisans all over the place. You can great, get great snacks, great food. You can get a carriage ride. You can see about anything. Vendors of every place. Every day. Lots of tourists down there. And then it starts getting dark. And about 7.30, everybody that's in Central Park vanishes. Because when it gets dark about 9 o'clock, let me tell you, in this place, something wicked this way comes. Because in the dark, this is the only place in Granada, Nicaragua, that the police are afraid of. The police. You know, in third world countries, the police carry Uzis. You know, automatic weapons. But they are terrified of Central Park. And I'll tell you why. Because in Central Park, what happens when it gets dark is the drug lords and the gangs come out. And if you want to buy anything from drugs to a human being, you can do it. You want a little boy? You can get one there. You want a little girl? You can get one there. You want a prostitute? You can get that one there. Those and a multitude of other things, the evil powers of their world, express themselves right there in Central Park. And I know what you're saying. You say, well, nice story, Mike. Glad Sarah got back and all that kind of stuff. And we even in our own minds, we start lulling ourselves to sleep. Well, of course these things happen in third world countries. They don't even speak English for the most part. They don't have the red, white, and blue. They don't have American cultural values. Well, let me show you another slide. Show us the next slide there, Caleb. Two numbers, big numbers. The bottom one is the gross national product of Nicaragua in 2013. Ten and a half billion dollars. Any guess on what the top one is? It's the number of dollars spent in America on pornography in 2013. That's one evil power of the world. I'm not throwing drugs, drinking, other kind of things. But on human trafficking and sex, sex crimes, all those kind of things, that much money was spent on one evil power. So don't tell me that this is just a third world problem. I would actually say that it's a bigger first world problem. The evil powers of this world are a bigger first world problem than they are a third world problem because we get so con- consumed with ourselves that we think we have enough money that we're our own gods and that we don't need anything else. We can entertain ourselves. And I could list a whole list of evil powers and societal evils, but I need you to hear this one too. When we get so arrogant about the fact that the United States is better, do you know where the closest human trafficking w- ring to where you're sitting right now was busted most recently? Six blocks. From right here, we were selling little girls in Marion. That's the evil powers of the world. Right on 7th Avenue. So when I say, and when we say, we reject the evil powers of this world, the evil powers of this world are all those things in this world that tear us and others away from God. And rejecting them 
means refusing to accept them, means discarding them as useless, and cast them out. Which is why, when you look at the very first Christian sermon that, when, that Peter speaks in Acts chapter 2, it says this, With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He doesn't say save yourself in the midst of the generation. And he doesn't say save the whole generation. Although, of course, he wants that to happen. The first and primary thing that you must do is save yourself from the generation. Because it's crooked, it's perverse, it's broken. And the Lord our God calls to you. Reject evil powers of this world. So should you join the church? I don't know. But no, if you do. You must say no to evil powers of this world. And lastly, we have to deal with the battle that's within us. I don't know how many times I've said to others, I am my own worst enemy. You ever said that? I'm my own worst enemy. I've made enough errors and mistakes. I'm my own worst enemy. Which is why, of course, we have to say, as we come to join the church, will you repent of your sin? doesn't take an outside influence to make you sin. doesn't take an outside influence to make me sin. I do just fine on my own, don't you? You do just fine on your own. Well, we're waist deep in this stuff. And when we become disciples of Jesus Christ, we still have to deal with the flesh. We don't get to divorce ourselves from the bodies we live and the spirits we have. We have to deal with that flesh and we have to deal that which in it with, is within us that's not disciplined. Now, let me give an example this way. When I went to seminary in 1981, I left here all my, ba- my belongings in that cherry red 1976 American Motors Gremlin. It was awesome. Unless you wanted to have a car. And then I'm not sure what this was. But anyway, that was the car I had. And when I drove it out to Nebraska, through Nebraska to Denver, I, I kind of had to put my hand here and kind of lean towards the passenger seat, kind of holding on to the emergency brake. Not because I was trying to low ride it. You know, that wasn't what I had going on there. No, what happened was, if I let go of the wheel, that car was so out of alignment, it was going to fire across the center line and pick off whatever was coming. It was such bad shape. And and our flesh is like that. You need to see our flesh needs to be in proper alignment because if we take our hands off the wheel of of our souls for long enough, we're going to end up smacking into something or end up in a ditch or even worse. That's why John the Baptist, in his first words that are uttered by John the Baptist in Scripture, says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It is right here. It is present. Repenting is that active choice we make to change our hearts and lives and put ourselves in proper alignment with God. We have ability, and God has the inclination to do so. But we need to repent. So should you join? We ask a lot in that first sentence. You renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness and reject evil powers of this world and repent of your sins. This morning we're going to take Holy Communion, which is the the last element of our service. And I'm going to give you opportunity there, and of course the Lord will always give you this opportunity, to really think through what all this means, what all this has been about this morning. You know, this is an opportunity here when you're you're doing the tangible signs of the Christian faith. You you hold the bread, you, you dip it into the cup, you taste the sweetness of it. 
you have the opportunity to renounce the cosmic battle for your soul, to pick your side and say, I stand with God and God alone. He is my refuge and strength, a very present help in every time uh, of troubles. You have the ability to, to reject the evil powers of this world, everything that tears you away from God and say, I, you know, I will trust in the Lord with all my heart. I will lean not on my own understandings, but I'll follow everything that God wants me to do. And you can repent of your sins, all of them. I mean, dang it, I, I, I sin so much. I try to repent individually of all my sins during the day. I sin so much, I just have to say at the end, God, everything I forgot. You know, we're that bad. Just everything I forgot, God. You, you cover that up and renew me for that. So work today when you're, when you're either on your knees or when you're coming forward on what you have to say no to so that your heart is prepared to accept the freedom and the power that God gives you when you accept Jesus Christ. And Pastor Keith's going to tell you all about what that means next week. But for now, we turn to Holy Communion. You know, we take communion in the United Methodist Church as an open table. So if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are invited to come and receive these elements. If you want to receive Christ for the first time, there is no better place to do that than on your knees in front of uh, the altar of God. We take communion in a very simplistic way. We'll be at stations on both ends of this aisle. Vicki will come to you if you're unable to, 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 to walk your way forward. But we'll, take, we'll have stations at each ends of these aisles. There's alt, uh, offering plates there where you can drop your prayer cards and your offerings. And then simply take a, a piece of bread. If you're not familiar with United Methodist Communion, we won't hand it to you. You need to take it yourself and then dip it into the cup and then receive it yourself. And then moving towards the center aisle and returning that way. You can pray as long as you want. There is no hurry here. Uh, your friends, your family uh, will wait for you. But this is for you. So on the last night of his life, Jesus took a loaf of bread, raised it to heaven, gave thanks to his Father in heaven, and broke it in front of his disciples and said, This bread represents my body. And just as you've seen this bread broken before you, so you'll see my body broken before you. And I believe, you know, at some level that Jesus looked right past his disciples at that moment and said, my body's broken, but you can't break the body of Christ, which is the church. And after the supper was fulfilled, he took the cup, raised it to heaven, gave thanks to his Father in heaven, and then said to his disciples, drink from this, all of you, for in this cup is the wine which represents my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread, drink this wine in remembrance of me. And I know it's not in the scriptures, but I believe he looked right past his disciples at Satan and said, you can extract the blood from these veins, but you cannot take the spirit from the world. So I say to you all, all of God's mighty acts of salvation are centered in one person, Jesus Christ. He proved it to us on the cross. He whipped our biggest foe in death. He rose for our sake and gives us opportunity to live. So ponder those things as you